Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 31 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, September 3rd. First, I'll be talking to Kat Long, the CEO of Trace, a company set up to help businesses and individuals reduce and or offset their carbon footprint. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about ways to... Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Manage our superannuation. But now, let's talk to Kat Long. Kat, tell us, how does Trace actually operate to measure, reduce, and offset our carbon footprints and track their impact over time? Uh, tell us about your work so far. Yeah, so Trace is a it's a software platform designed for small to medium enterprises who want to become carbon neutral. So what we've done is we've tried to make that process as streamlined and straightforward as possible. And the reason we've done that is because my co-founder and I both have worked across sustainability in our previous corporate jobs and observed that the process to measure what a, a business's carbon footprint generally involves hundreds of spreadsheets it's very complicated it requires some level of sort of expertise or at least knowledge of all of the jargon that actually it's a real barrier to action so for small businesses who just want to do the right thing and and be shown to be taking climate action there's really a lack of solutions out there for them so we've built trace as a way to remove those barriers So what we do is we gather some data in a very streamlined fashion on a digital platform from our clients. So, for example, how many staff do you have? How do they get to work? Tell us about your office buildings, how much waste you produce and tell us about your suppliers. All information that's fairly easy for them to, to gather. And then we pump that through our carbon emissions model, which then gives a carbon footprint for that business. And we do that free of charge, which is which is really unheard of, frankly. Most consultancies would charge, you know, a large fee for those services. But we, we want to do that for free and, and as quickly as possible. And that really gives a business an idea of what their emissions look like and where, where the biggest opportunities for action are. Uh, so, for example, they might go, wow, you know, travel is clearly a big opportunity for us. Is there a way that we can reduce the number of flights that we take? Not a huge issue at the moment, but will be no doubt in the uh, in 2022. Electricity is often a huge driver. So are, is there an opportunity for a business to source renewable energy or install solar? So by giving them visibility through our assessment, they can start putting in place those strategies. And then anything they can't reduce 
they can offset through uh, carbon credits, which Trace actually sources on their behalf. And what that means is we find climate projects all over the world that have a really measurable impact on, on carbon pollution. And we, we procure those credits so that they can actually call uh, their, their business carbon neutral and neutralise that, that pollution. Right, okay. So tell us about your work with Deloitte Lend-Lease and the activist beverage brand Spark and tech innovator companies like WISR and Litru. Yeah, so we we work with a real variety of businesses, as you alluded to there. So we can, you know, we've we help businesses that might already be on their quite far progressed on their sustainability journey or only just at the beginning. And some of the businesses you touched on there are, you know, at different stages. But one thing that's in common is that all of these companies are taking action because they believe it's the right thing to do, not because it's some sort of mandatory expectation from the government or from shareholders. So what they what that means is that they don't want to do it they don't want to become carbon neutral in silence. They want to involve their employees, tell their customers and, you know, make it a really engaging and rewarding process. So we work with these businesses to help them not only become carbon neutral, but amplify that impact by sharing it with their employees and their staff through marketing assets, stories. We can run carbon footprint quizzes with, with their employees so Lendlease and Deloitte are a great example there. We actually rolled out our carbon footprint quiz to all of their staff and they were able to participate, find out their personal footprint and then choose to offset that. So, you know, whether they're huge companies like Lendlease, Deloitte, ANZ Bank or small, small startups or kind of scaling tech companies like Wiser and Spark, we can help them because we make it really simple and really engaging. Now, uh, with the race to net zero on everyone's radar, who are the businesses Trace is working with? I mean, what are they actually doing specifically to reduce their carbon footprints? Generally small to medium enterprises, I would say. So most of our clients have somewhere between sort of 20 and 200 staff, you know, kind of growing companies, but not, not enormous. And the really interesting thing about these businesses is that previously the opportunity for reaching net zero was generally through taking action within their offices. So sourcing green energy for, you know, green electricity or helping reduce waste or making their buildings more efficient. Now, obviously, COVID has slightly changed the game and now workforces are generally remote. Uh, travel has, is almost non-existent. So the opportunity for these businesses and our clients generally sits in people's homes, you know, in their, off, in their home offices. So a lot of the action they're doing is helping their, their staff understand what they can be doing personally in their, in their home lives to reduce their personal carbon footprint. Other than that, there's other actions that they can take around waste reduction, ethical and sustainable supply chain sourcing, and then, you know, obviously the efficiencies around their office as they were doing before. Uh, how do you see carbon offsetting develop over the next decade? Gosh, interesting question. It is a, a market that is rapidly growing. The, a recent task force on the voluntary carbon markets has estimated that um, the carbon credit market will grow 15 fold by 2030, taking it to a US dollar 50 billion market, which is enormous. So the, the demand for these carbon offsets is growing rapidly. And the real challenge at the moment is supply. So what that means is that, in my view, there needs to be some radical overhaul to how carbon offsets, like the units that are issued and, and purchased by corporates, the methodology around issuing and auditing them needs to be significantly simplified, but also ensuring that, that, that there are risk management principles in place, because 
you know, whether you've, if you've seen the news recently, there's often a company in there that's been sort of slapped on the wrist for buying offsets that are funding, I know, tobacco farms, for example. So there needs to be risk management in place. But in order to manage to achieve the supply that's required, it needs to be a more simplified process to issue them. What role do you see Australia playing in that? I mean, uh, do you see a role in carbon farming, for example? Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a huge opportunity. I think I, I read recently that over 60 percent of Australia's land mass is covered by farms. So if you imagine all of the soil that that that, that uh, represents, it is a huge opportunity for carbon sequestration. So carbon farming, for anyone that doesn't know, is essentially uh, methodologies that are put in place by farmers in order to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that are created on their farm. And that's often released through, from the soil through you know, harvesting crops or their cattle grazing, that kind of thing. So I think carbon markets are a huge opportunity to incentivize farmers to put in place more sustainable practices and thereby trap millions of megatons more CO2 in the soil. And that, would, uh, that could actually turn into quite a good money spinner for farmers, couldn't it? Absolutely. And that's exactly why carbon credits are a, are a clever mechanism because it actually creates financial incentives, not just, you know, feel good incentives for farmers to take action and do something about this. Of course, uh, which would uh, stand to reason that uh, you would expect farmers to be completely on side with all of this. They are. I mean, well, I, I can't say I've spoken to every farmer and, and you know, know their, their views on the matter, but certainly um, a lot of them are adopting these practices. Now, the, the challenge, a bit like I said before, is that the, the, the cost to set up and kind of monitor and audit the credits that you're issuing comes at a cost. So, you know, you do need a bit of financial investment up front, but ultimately it's a great um, revenue generator for them. Now, the issue of uh, developing a proper system proper system of auditing i mean who's going to manage that yeah that, look there's different bodies in different countries um here the clean ed, clean energy regulator that's run by the, the australian government manages the registration of these credits and and manages a an auction process to sell those off uh there's also global uh, operators so yeah look i think it's it's really there's a lot of pressure on on these on these organizations to create really accessible methodologies so that there is enough supply to meet that demand that I spoke about before. Well, potentially, you could actually develop a, a, a global market in carbon offsets, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. There are um, there are exchanges that are starting to to, to come forward and uh, to to present global marketplaces for for these things. And you know, we tap into global markets already. So the credits that we buy at Trace are come from all over the world so we have a project in turkey a project in uganda a project many multiple projects in australia uh, so you know it is a very global market by definition and i think the more that there can be transparency of pricing between countries the better right okay okay so uh, we're looking at a, an enormous market uh, with billions and billions of dollars a year in that case globally globally i mean look if it, the, the, the prediction is Let's translate it into Aussie dollars, $65 billion by 2030 in the market. That's a huge number of credits being purchased uh, globally. And it's being driven by companies that are taking action, you know, and, and most of that is totally voluntary. It's nothing to do with regulation. It's because businesses believe that the future of their companies relies on the sustainable uh, outcomes of, of this planet. Well, that's all quite fascinating. And uh, Kat, thank you very much for your time. You're so welcome. Lovely to meet you, Leon. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Green. Well, 
Nicholas, uh, you've been looking at our super scheme and you've got views about tax concessions and savings incentives. Uh, yeah, well, I've had these views for a long time. My basic idea is either go for compulsion, which we have, unlike lots of other places, or go for incentives, but don't go. For, in fact, I prefer to go for compulsion as we do, but and, and I could argue that basically incentives don't work, but go for one or the other. If you use both, you just waste money. And that's, we've wasted a vast amount of taxpayer money subsidising savings in the Australian system. But basically, it's a, it's a flat, most taxes on the scheme are flat 15% or zero during the uh, drawdown phase. I mean, what's wrong with that? <laughs> what's wrong with it is that we don't generally believe in flat taxation. We believe in progressive taxation. So superannuation, the superannuation system that we have has a, quite an important role in compelling people to, re, to save for their retirement, and I support that. And it also is a tax avoidance vehicle of considerable power for very wealthy people. Someone was telling me the other day, someone who, who studied this quite closely, that the largest self-managed super funds, these are little family super funds, uh, the, large, uh, the largest ones are over $500 million. Uh, over $500 million is in them. This is for four people. So this is not to this is not a special concession to help somebody live out their retirement. It's a huge tax rule. So you're saying savings incentives and tax concessions on super are actually designed to help the wealthy. Uh, I didn't say they were designed to, but I certainly say that they do. And uh, I mean, I remember this. I was working in John Button's office in the early Hawke years and in uh, John Dawkins' office in the early Keating years. And I remember in the early Hawke years, there was a very small increase in super. I think it was part of the income uh, price and incomes accord, and it was a 3% uh, there was it, it went to three percent, and it was in lieu of a pay rise, and so on. And I, I'm not quite sure how it was taxed, but it was taxed more fairly than it. In, at the end, uh, anyway, what happened was that Barry Unsworth, who became Premier of New South Wales, was then the head of the Trades Hall in New South Wales, as I recall, kicked up a huge stink, and they ended up with this flat tax of 15%. And the super industry also likes that because they say it's easier to administer. Now, that's fine. Uh, everything should be as easy to administer as meets reasonable policy goals. And it would not be particularly hard to, for each account to have registered on it people's marginal tax rate and that super fund, you know, that, that little pile of money gets taxed at that rate. That's what we should do, uh, and that stops it being a tax rule. But you're saying basically uh, the tax concessions are a waste of taxpayers' money? Uh, well, that's another... Yes, I, I think I would say that. that. That's a complicated story, but if you look at the literature on what happens when people face savings incentives, let me ask you, Leon, if I told you that I would improve the returns on your savings by say uh, 5%, would you actually consume less? I think it's, it's hard for me to believe that I would do that. Uh, so our savings decisions are very uh, the, sort of, or right, let's say our consumption decisions, which of course 
drive our savings decisions, those are driven by what we're used to in our lives and savings is a residual. So it's quite easy to come up with incentives, in which case people take the savings they would have saved anyway and stick them in those special accounts where they get special tax deals, but that doesn't increase savings. That just changes where people put their savings. And that's the sort of thing that's going on. That's the dominant response uh, to what's going on with, I think they're called 401k accounts in the United States and something similar in the United Kingdom. So uh, they're expensive, they don't work. And the other thing is to the extent that they work, they're advantaging people who save more. And who, who, who saves more? The wealthy. So that, that it's, so you're starting to see some of the reasons why I think that if you have a savings problem, compulsion is a fairer and in fact more efficient way to go than these savings incentives where we think that they're doing something and they're really just reshuffling where people put their savings. Well, how easy is it to uh, drive compulsion politically? Uh, well, Australians seem to support compulsion. The, the, it's one of the few areas where the ALP, maybe I shouldn't say that one of the few areas, but it's certainly one of the areas where the ALP has managed to drive progress in gradually ratcheting up compulsion and the unions, despite the now clear opposition of their opponents. So Australians support, uh, Australians support uh, compulsory super. The super industry, sad to say, is a huge lobbyist for uh, increasing compulsory super. So I think, you know, politically it works fine. So in fact, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see us go to a system which I call Singapore light. Now, Singapore has more aggressive compulsory saving than we do here, but it's much more flexible. So my ideal superannuation system has a superannuation compulsion going from where it is now from 10% up to 12%, which is policy. I'd be happy to take it probably to 15%, possibly a bit more, and I'd allow people to take a housing deposit out of that and, and certain other uh, important savings needs that they have or investment needs that they have before they get to retirement. So it's a housing deposit, possibly education, possibly health, although we're supposed to have a health system that doesn't need it. What about uh, regulating for good information flow? That seems to be an issue. I'm not sure what you mean by that. What, uh, in what, what area? Well, uh, you know, for people to inform themselves in uh, the complex system. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one. What we do there is we, we have a lot of evidence that most people are at sea in the market for working out what, where, to put them, where to put their super money, which, which firm uh, to use to put their super money. Most people now put them in an industry fund and that works quite well. But policy is predicated on the idea that a market would do this very efficiently. But we know that people don't, uh, we know that the market for savings products isn't, that people don't understand it nearly as well as the market for cookies or AFL tickets or whatever you like. They understand what they're getting there. And uh, the, the, the individual superannuants in Australia, uh, how, wage earners who have super funds, if you give them the choice between, you know, NAB and Westpac superannuation vehicle, they have no idea. 
and and so one of one of the things I've argued is that yes, it's fine to try and make sure that there's better information going to people, but one thing you can do is you can give people the same option that public servants have, which is that the government runs a professional, low cost, high quality scheme, and anyone can access it. Uh, if you're a public servant, you put your money into a public super fund, and I think anyone should be able to do that. And then people like my mother-in-law, who barely speaks English, can say, well, at least I'll give that to the government, and at least I know it may not be the best possible return I could get. It may not be guaranteed, because they keep telling me it's not guaranteed on the, on the paperwork, but I know it's professionally managed, and I know I'm not getting ripped. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And uh, that way you get over the problem where most people don't have a clue about how to manage their investment portfolios. And we don't lecture them and say, you've got to become financially literate people you know we're we're supposed to believe in the division of labor we're supposed to believe that if people don't want to do that uh they still have needs and governments can try to create a system in which they don't get systematically ripped off which is essentially what happens now unless they go into uh industry super which which works quite well well nicholas gruen that's all fascinating stuff and thank you very much for your time thanks leon so what's happening in the news? Well, global investors have queried the government's funding arm over the impact of COVID-19 lockdowns, a relatively low vaccination rate, the deteriorating trade relationship with China, and a slowdown in population growth. In recent talks with some of the world's major central banks, hedge funds, insurers, pension funds and banks, the Australian Office of Financial Management fielded questions on a range of pandemic-related issues, including whether slower population growth may tighten the jobs market, as well as international trade while touching on Australia's environmental and climate-related commitments. The AOFM uses the roadshows to borrow tens of billions of dollars to fund Canberra's budget shortfall. Fixed interest fund managers generally have an extremely low appetite for risk, which makes the sessions a sounding board for the mood of global investors. Australia has nearly $840 billion of bonds and treasury notes on issue, with 54% held by offshore investors. Following the May budget, offshore investors were generally upbeat on the outlook for the Australian economy, amid an improvement in the budget position and forward projections compared to the mid-year economic and fiscal update last December. But as the meetings progress, discussions focus on both upside and downside fiscal risk, the latter brought about by the recent resurgence of COVID-19 due to the spread of the Delta variant and lockdowns in some parts of Australia, including Sydney and Melbourne. And the Australian economy expanded by 0.7% in the June quarter, 
beating market expectations to be 9.6% larger than a year ago. And chief executives from 80 companies employing almost 1 million people placed an open letter in major newspapers on Wednesday, calling on state premiers to stay the course on the national reopening plan. The letter includes the leaders of BHP, the banks, retailers such as West Farmers, Woolworths and Coles, Telstra, Qantas, insurers and property companies. It says the Doherty Institute informed plan struck the right balance between keeping people safe and the risks of indefinitely keeping the country divided and cut off from the world. And Australia Post's acting chief executive warns lockdowns are putting significant pressure on supply chains and the transport of essential goods as the rules for interstate freight drivers also cause chaos across state borders. Acting CEO Rodney Boyd said lockdowns were putting significant strain on their delivery services with the passenger flights used to transport parcels suspended or reduced, up to 500 staff in isolation and up to 100 post offices closed by COVID-19. Major distribution centres have been shut down, including the key Sydney International Gateway last week and the Thomastown Distribution Centre in Melbourne, which was forced to close on Tuesday following another closure in Melton. And more than $13 billion in JobKeeper payments were given to businesses, which recorded increases in revenue, fooling accusations from Labor that the wage subsidy was the biggest budget waste in Australia's history. New figures from Parliament's budget watchdog revealed that almost 200,000 firms which received JobKeeper payments posted rises in business revenue during the first six months of the program last year. Overall, more than 13% of the $98 billion wage subsidy went to entities earning increased turnover between April the 1st and September the 30th in 2020, compared to the same period a year earlier. To ensure speed of payment, the wage subsidy was targeted at businesses, which forecast a 30% decline in revenue in any single month or quarter out of six months. The required decline in forecast revenue was 50% for large businesses, turning over more than $1 billion. And BHP Group is considering making COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory at its operations in Australia and will help the national rollout by offering jabs on site as the country grapples with its worst outbreaks of the virus. The Global Miner said it would complete a technical assessment of the policy in September and likely start enforcing it in early 2022, once people have had the opportunity to get fully vaccinated. BHP is the first big resources company to consider such a step, although other Australian companies, including Qantas Airways Limited and HealthScope Limited, have already said they will make inoculation compulsory. And Virgin Australia will follow the lead of rival Qantas in making COVID-19 vaccinations required for all frontline staff from mid-November and office-based workers from the end of March. The airline said a consultation process would start with unions and employees soon, with a more detailed policy to come later on. And stationary chain Kiki.K has fallen victim to the impact of lockdowns in New South Wales, Victoria and ACT, announcing it has collapsed for the second time in 17 months, putting 300 Aussie jobs in jeopardy. Last March, the company collapsed owing $20 million to creditors, but was rescued by a US-based lifestyle products company called Erin Condren Designs, or EC Designs, which took control last August. Bakiki.K's co-founders Christina Carlson and Paul Lacey released a message to staff on Monday about the sad day, revealing that they were going to voluntary administration again. Ms Carlson and Mr Lacey blamed the collapse on the latest lockdown in, in Kiki.K's home state in Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT, saying the company was heavily dependent on sales from its retail stores, which sell diaries, calendars, planners, notebooks, cards and wrapping paper, saying there was no clear end in sight to lockdowns. And KPMG has revealed it substantiated 27 complaints of workplace misconduct last financial year, as it takes an industry-leading approach to disclosure around culture and safety mm. issues. 
The complaints resulted in appropriate and proportionate consequences, ranging from financial penalties to dismissals, according to a report by the firm. The firm said three cases involved sexual harassment. The bulk of complaints received by the firm in recent years were either bullying allegations against senior leaders or sexual harassment complaints against junior staff. About 44% or more than 3,000 of the firm's roughly 8,000 full-time staff are younger than 30. The disclosure will be made annually in the firm's impact report. Workplace health and safety experts and lawyers largely advocate taking a transparency-centred approach to workplace harassment complaints since the Harvey Weinstein scandal exposed the dangers of non-disclosure agreements. And Fortescue Metals Group Chairman Andrew Forrest has called on the Federal Government to set a target date for carbon neutrality, declaring a firm target was critical to encouraging business investment. Dr Forrest has already committed the mining major to ambitious carbon reduction targets, promising Fortescue's giant Pilbara iron ore operations will be carbon neutral by 2030 and saying the company will set goals for the reduction of emissions from its customers by the end of September. Through its Fortescue Future Industries subsidiary, the iron ore major is also seeking to become the biggest renewable energy company in the world, promising to invest 10% of its annual profits in new projects focused on the production of green hydrogen and other forms of renewable energy. And Officeworks is planning to install solar panels and batteries at a distribution centre in Melbourne to power a fleet of robots and help achieve ambitious sustainability targets. Officeworks Managing Director Sarah Hunter said the batteries to be installed at the Truganina Centralised Fulfilment Centre in conjunction with Officeworks robotics partner Corbo will be a first in Australia. Officeworks also plans to install solar panels on at least 20 stores this year, taking the number of stores powered by renewable energy to almost 30, while switching light to LED and using materials such as light reflective paint so stores and distribution centres absorb less heat and use less energy. By Officeworks landlords, it is part of the group's strategy to achieve 100% renewable energy by 2025 and net zero carbon emissions by 2030. It is also targeting zero waste to landfill by repairing, recycling or reusing about 17,000 tonnes of material by 2025, ensuring all packaging is, re- is recyclable or reusable and, with Greening Australia, planting 2 million trees to replace trees used in the production of paper products. And Coca-Cola Australia is gearing up for arguably its most challenging new product launch in years as it makes the first foray into alcoholic beverages in the middle of a pandemic. Coca-Cola Australia, the marketing arm of the Coca-Cola company, will next week launch Topo Chico, an alcoholic hard seltzer based on the top-selling Topo Chico mineral water brand which has been bottled in Mexico for 126 years. The Coca-Cola company bought Topo Chico for US $220 million in 2017 and launched an alcoholic version of the beverage in Latin America in 2020 and in North America earlier this year amid a boom in sales of hard seltzers. And tech company Canva has unveiled a new workplace policy that asks workers to come to the office at least twice a season or eight times a year once pandemic restrictions were lifted. Rather than mandating when employees are expected to be in the office, Campbell will let its 2,000 workers around the globe choose where and when they work based on their needs. According to a staff survey, 79% of Canberra employees feel productive working from home, and 81% would like to continue balancing this flexibility while having regular opportunities for in-person collaboration. The company is the latest to provide workers with clear guidelines about what life will be like when it is safe to reopen offices. Canva's new policy is not as radical as Atlassian's Team Anywhere policy, unveiled this year, that permits staff to work anywhere in the world and come into the office just four times a year. And the corporate regulator has warned the nation's 13 worst super funds against providing their 1.1 million members with misleading information about their performance. 
13 funds have failed the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority's inaugural superannuation performance test, including Commonwealth Bank's in-house super product for its employees and the industry fund for Victorian independent school employees. The largest default super providers that have fallen foul of the new test are Colonial First State and BT, with a pair managing 777,000 member accounts across their two underperforming products. The 13 funds, which collectively hold $56 billion in assets, will be forced to send a pro forma letter to the 1.1 million affected members by the end of September, telling them their super is sitting in a product that has performed poorly. As a result, we are required to write to you and suggest that you consider moving your money into a different superannuation product, the letter will say. And company profits and wages have both risen during the June quarter from the previous three-month period. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, company gross operating profits rose 7.1% seasonally adjusted, while wages and salaries rose 2% seasonally adjusted. The data is among the final few pieces of partial data ahead of the second quarter GDP on Wednesday. And the profit reporting season continues. Biotech researcher Mesoblast has widened its financial 2021 net loss to US $98.8 million on sales down 77% to US $7.5 million. Harvey Norman's profit before tax climbed 78.8% to a record $1.18 billion, with its Australian franchising operations segment delivering a record result of $628.2 million, up 80.2%. Crown Resorts revenue slid 31.3% to $1.54 billion, leading to a $261.6 million loss for the year. Online fashion retailer Satir slipped into the red in 2021, even though sales rose fourfold amid a boom in new customers buying international luxury brands such as Gucci, Burberry and Valentino online. The e-tailer, which listed in December, reported a maiden net loss of $251,000 compared with a profit of $1.5 million in 2020, after booking $800,000 in costs associated with its initial public offering. Freedom Foods has narrowed its financial 2021 net loss to $38.8 million versus $136.4 million in the prior year. Liberty Financial statutory net profit after tax jumped 38% to $185.4 million. Altium's profit soared 246.4% to US $107 million. EBITDA slid 2.9% to US $60 million. Temple and Webster's net profit after tax came in at $14 million, which on a normalised basis was up 165%. Active customers also climbed 62% to $778,000. Fortescue's net profit climbed 117% to US $10.3 billion. Adore Beauty's profit soared 168% to $845,000. Underlying profit climbed 64% to $6 million. Booktopia has widened its financial 2021 loss to $18 million, on revenue up 35.1% to $223.9 million. Cash Converters International returned to profitability in financial 2021, with a bottom line of $16.2 million from a, from a 2020 loss of $10.5 million. Aussie broadband revenues rose 84% to $350.3 million, 3.6% ahead of forecast, while EBITDA climbed 433% to $19.1 million, 55% ahead of forecasts. Helios' full-year earnings increased to $266.5 million on an underlying basis from $129 million, and net profit rose 179% to $148.4 million. Controversial tech float Newix has swung to a $1.6 million statutory loss in financial 2021 versus a profit of $23.6 million in financial 2020. Revenue rose 0.1% to $176 million. InvoCare reported statutory profit after tax attributed to shareholders of $44 million for the half, a turnaround from the $18 million loss reported in the prior corresponding period. 
Japara Healthcare reported a loss of $14.1 million, an improvement on the $292.1 million loss from a year ago. Girotex revenue slipped 4.7% to $235.7 million, while profits slid 45.2% to $7.1 million. Personal lender Harmony's pro forma total income was down 8% to New Zealand's $79.1 million, while its cash net profit after tax dropped from New Zealand $2.8 million to in, two th- in FY20 to a loss of New Zealand $400,000 in mm. FY21. PointsBet reported a loss of $187.1 million, more than four times the loss it reported a year earlier. Non-bank lender Resimac Group reported a normalised net profit after tax of $104 million, up 87% on the prior year. Statutory impact came in at $107.6 million, which was 92% higher. Cloud services distributed Ripe's operating profit climbed 31% to $18 million. IGO's revenue rose to a record $919 million, while net profit climbed 254% to a record $549 million. Bubs Australia reported a loss before tax of $77.8 million compared to a $16.1 million loss in FY20. Regis Healthcare's net profit soared 2,886% to $19.9 million. Australia Post announced FY21 group revenue of $8.27 billion, a new record up 10.3% and a profit before tax of $100.7 million. Total revenue was boosted by the continued growth in e-commerce brought about by COVID-19 with strong parcel growth. Parcel and services revenue grew 17.7% to $6.48 billion on the back of a 27.1% increase in Australia Post branded parcels and Star Trek volumes up 12.1%. Regional Express reported an $18.4 million operating loss after tax. Debt collector Pioneer Credit's statutory net loss narrowed to $19.7 million from $40.1 million. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Karen Vivarelli, successful local businesswoman and virtual assistant who is coaching others on how to thrive working for yourself at home and who has been named a finalist for the 2021 Oz Mumpreneur Awards. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Eslake about how Australia will fare in this recession. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 